0: From the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta, welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. My name is Tony Sundermeyer, the senior pastor, and I want to thank you for watching today's broadcast. Now, I invite you to join in the worship of God.
1: Turn in your pew Bibles to Psalm 36, verses 5 through 10, which is found on page 482 in the Old Testament. Listen to God's word. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mighty mountains, your judgments are like the great deep. You save humans and animals alike, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. All people may take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light, we see light. O continue your steadfast love to those who know you in your salvation to the upright of heart. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thanks. The text that Marissa read uh, is part of the lectionary cycle, the texts assigned for this day, the text I'm about to read, the second chapter of John is also assigned. They say when a preacher creates a sermon series, they choose the scriptures and when a preacher sticks to the lectionary, the scriptures choose the preacher. These two texts choose us this morning. Let us continue to sit under the word of God. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Uh, Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, "'They have no wine.'" He said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, hold that line in your hearts, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this. The first of his signs in Cana of Galilee and revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Friends, this too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us stand and sing number 451. let us pray. Lord, break open your word afresh to us so that our eyes would see and our ears would hear and our mouths would speak a simple but profound truth within the life of our faith. By your grace, would you form us into the likeness and image of Jesus Christ who is our Lord, our Savior, our friend, and our brother. Amen. Well, there is an organization called the Court of Somaliers of the Americas. Uh, And since 1977, there have been only about 270 individuals in North America who have earned the rank of Master Sommelier. Since that time, about only 270 people. Now, the name Sommelier is a fancy French word to describe a wine steward. Someone who is an expert in all things wine and spirits and table service. Now, there are four ranks within the court of Sommeliers of America. uh, Four ranks that can be conferred to wine stewards. There's the introductory rank, there is the certified rank, there is the advanced rank, and finally, there is the master sommelier. Only about 5% of wine stewards, only about 5% of wine stewards who actually sit for the master level examination actually pass. Only about 5% of those individuals. A fun little fact here. Uh, There is only one person who is a master sommelier that lives in the state of Georgia. Only one person, they live here in Atlanta. Uh, The exam is not too complex, even though it is extremely difficult. It comes in three distinct parts. There is theory, uh, which covers the history and philosophy, the geography, and the science of winemaking throughout history, throughout the world. Uh, Then there's a practicum, where they actually stage A restaurant, and they have a a table filled with 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 experts, uh, master sommeliers themselves, and they have to they have to critique and judge the sommelier, not just on their knowledge of wine, but also on their acumen of hospitality and the standards that industry sets. And finally, the third part, which I find to be the most impossible and incredible part of the test, they have to do a blind tasting with six glasses of wine, three white, three red, in 25 minutes. For each glass, they get a total of 25 minutes. They have to describe the color, the smell, the structure, and the taste. And then after they do that, they have to come to a conclusion, which includes for each and every wine, the primary grape used in that glass of wine. They also have to come to the conclusion whether or not it is from the old world or the new world. They have to come to the conclusion of what type of climate the grapes were actually grown in. They have to determine where the country uh, that they originate from, and not just the country, but the actual region within the country, and if they can to name the actual vineyard where they were produced. Finally they have to be able to come close to naming the vintage of the wine. When it comes to wine and spirits, a master-level sommelier not only has to possess a sophisticated and discerning palate to describe the wine itself, but they also have to understand and know the origins of where the wine comes from. Not only do they have to describe it, but that they have to to tell, come to a conclusion of where it comes from. We actually meet a sommelier of sorts in the second chapter of the Gospel of John. And for preaching purposes, we could go in many different directions with this old, uh, familiar story. Uh, It's historically remembered in the life of the church as the story that captures and depicts Jesus' first public miracle, what John calls a sign. And in preparation for this morning, I was particularly struck in reading this text again by this no-name individual who probably, most likely, wore different hats at this particular wedding reception where Jesus, his mother, and his friends were in attendance. It's possible that this particular person, based on the Greek word describing him— It is possible that he was the master of ceremonies. It's possible that he was the maitre d'. It's possible that he was the banquet manager. It's possible that he was the food and beverage manager. And it is certainly possible that he was the wine steward. It is also possible that he was all of these things wrapped up in one person. In fact, uh, in certain English translations of the New Testament, we don't see chief steward. We actually see wine steward listed as the translation. At first glance, though, in this text, he seems to be an inconsequential character. And he's given really just one line in the script, just one line in this story. But that one single solitary line is actually a big part, I think, of the interpretive key, not just to understanding this story, but to really understanding, maybe even in a new and fresh way, the person of Jesus and the mission he came to fulfill. And I want to unpack this story through this sommelier's eyes. Through this character that seems inconsequential, but holds, I think, this interpretive key. Now, first and foremost, there, is, there are rather not many things that are worse, right? There are not many things that are worse than when you're throwing a party, whether it's big or small, intimate, or huge, there are not many things that are worse than running out of something that is important. I see some folks nodding their heads. That you've been at parties like these, right? Or you've thrown parties like these. When you run out of something that is critical to the party, critical to the celebration. Uh, there's a story in our immediate family that has become regularly told for comedic purposes. And I want to preface it by saying that Katie, my wife, is an extraordinary party planner. In fact, if it wasn't for her, we would not have birthday parties. We would not have celebrations. We would not have uh, the wonderful get-togethers that we do in a regular way. She's really good at it. She's a really good organizer. She's a good convener of bringing people Uh, Together. So a few years ago, uh, she planned and we threw a birthday party for Johnny, our older son, who at that time was turning 11. And Katie, in her party planning way, had secured the premier spot in the area we were living in to throw preteen birthday parties, Bounce You. Okay, It's this big warehouse with these inflatables that you bounce for like 90 minutes, right? So she invited this great list for the party, 15 kids plus a few of their parents. And she handled all the logistics, which included food. And she had said that I'm going to order pizza for uh, the party as we wrap up the bouncing. Then they can all go to the party room and have some pizza. So we gather in the, in the party room. And the pizza man shows up and he has two pies. And I think this is an obvious mistake. He's either in the wrong party room or somehow he got Katie's order messed up. I said, Katie, the pizza guy, he's only got two pies. She said, I know, that's what I ordered. 16 pieces, one for each kid and one left over. 16 pieces for 15 11 year old boys. Now, in her defense, Katie grew up with—it's okay to laugh. She gave me permission to tell this story. It's a, I wouldn't tell it if we hadn't already planned this. By the way, that's my wife for first-time visitors. Katie's right here. Uh, she grew up in a family with a sister, and so she didn't attend many 11-year-old boys' birthday parties, so she never had an experience firsthand of how ravenous they can be, especially after 90 minutes of bouncing bedlam, Right? She said, I planned one piece per boy. And Johnny and his friends looked at us dumbfounded, and they basically said, how can we survive the night if we only have one piece of pizza? So we, all, we gave them each three pieces of cake <laughs> uh, and sent them home to their parents. Well, just like it's not good to run out of pizza at an 11-year-old boy's birthday party or run out of cheese straws during the fellowship hour in a southern church or to run out of uh, Coke or tea or chicken salad at a picnic, it's not a good thing to run out of wine at a wedding. It's not a good thing. It's, in fact, it's embarrassing to run out of wine at a, at a wedding. And, and this is the presenting problem within this text The wine is gone. It's embarrassing, both for the couple and for the host throwing the party. And Mary, the mother of Jesus, who is in attendance, steps in, perhaps oversteps. She steps in and asks Jesus to do something about it. And in this moment, which could be a sermon in and of itself, and I want to do this little tangent here just for a moment. It could be a sermon in and of itself. Jesus at once rebukes his mother. With harsh words, he says, woman, what concern is that to you and to me? It's not my time to have my true identity be revealed. But then in the next couple of verses, we realize that he actually does it, right? He actually does what she is asking to help out with the fact that they have run out of wine. And there's a tension, right? Sometimes in life, there can be a tension with two moral goods, In our life that we're facing are two uh, competing values that that oftentimes will come and say, well, it's got to be an either or. And Jesus models for us in grace something different, right? He actually honors both of the values. At once, he says, ultimately, I have to be obedient to God. And at the same time, he becomes obedient to his mother by fulfilling her request. Sometimes we're we're faced with these competing values that we see as competition, perhaps, these moral goods. And I think sometimes God gives us the grace to honor both, to live into both. That's sort of an aside. Jesus identifies six uh, stone jars whose content could hold approximately 120 to 180 gallons of water. And Jesus commands them to fill the jars with water. And we're not sure where they actually get the water from. It could be that there was already some water already there and that they're filling it up to the brim. But let's just be mindful of what we're talking about here. These jars that are used rather for purification. Really, they're jars to hold bath water. Remember, we're living in a time now, right, with Jesus, living in a time where it was safer to drink wine than it was to drink water because of the alcohol and the way that it would kill bacteria. So let alone people feeling like it's not a good idea to drink any water, but to drink water out of these stone jars is actually pretty disgusting. Because this water was bath water to use to purify oneself for liturgical purposes. But Jesus instructs the disciples, and they listen to Mary, do whatever he tells you, and they do it. They fill it up. To the brim, And then he says, take some out and take it to the wine steward. Take it to the steward and have them taste it. And the steward does just that. And like a good sommelier, he has a discerning palate. And he recognizes that this is the better wine. That this is the better wine that was served earlier. He calls, though, the bridegroom. Because John tells us, that he does not know where it has come from. Did you catch that line I said to hold? He doesn't know where it has come from. He says to the groom, everyone serves the good wine first and the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk, but you have kept the good wine until now. Now I want you in your mind's eye to picture the similarity and dissimilarity this wine steward has with master sommeliers in our contemporary world, right? He's similar in at least this way. He's similar in that he can discern that the wine that he tastes is a quality product. He has a discerning palate. He knows this is fine. He knows this is good. But he is dissimilar because he fails to recognize in an analogical way He fails to recognize where the wine has come from. Do you follow me here? He knows it's good. He discerns that it's fine. He sees that it is in abundance, 180 gallons. But he does not know where it comes from. So he goes to the groom, presuming that that's where it's from. We may think that he's congratulating him, or perhaps he really has a genuine inquiry as, why have you saved the good stuff for last? Here's the thing. The steward recognizes the abundance of wine. He recognizes the quality of wine. He recognizes it as a special gift that somebody is giving to all the guests at this party. But he does not recognize where it comes from. He does not recognize its origin. And the Gospel of John and the writers of the New Testament in 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 their Gospel forms often are weaving in and out this notion that people are experiencing good, but they don't know it's coming from Jesus. And there is this tension that some people... I.e., in this text, the disciples, they actually get it. They know it's come from him, where others don't know that these gifts are coming from his hand. They know there's something good on the way. There's, they know there's something fine on the way. They're, they know there's something in abundance on the way, but they don't know where it is coming from. They don't know that it's Jesus. I want to take just a half step back. I want to say something about weddings here, because I don't think this... Uh, these stories about weddings that are included in the New Testament are just simply by accident or by happenstance. Uh, Jesus himself, he talks about the kingdom of God more than any other topic in the New Testament. And the kingdom of God is often compared to what? To a wedding. It's often compared to a party. One of my mentors, Tony Campolo, a professor of mine in, in my undergraduate degree, wrote a book called The Kingdom of God as a Party. And he used to tell us, he said, look, if you belong to a church that doesn't know how to party... If you belong to a church that doesn't know how to celebrate, if I walk into a church and people look lethargic and they don't look like they possess the joy of the Lord, then then that's a church that is missing the mark. He was harsh on that. He he, He was critical of that because he believed that the kingdom of God, our witness to the kingdom, should celebrate. It doesn't mean that we're naive to struggles. I certainly and we certainly talk enough about the struggles that we face. But that the kingdom of God is a party that even in the midst of struggle, even in the midst of pain, God shows up and throws a party. And that the joy of the Lord is our strength. And there is something so compelling. And I know we have another new members class today. I know that this is part of the work that God's doing in this church. That we may not use this language, but there's a party going on here. Even in those uncomfortable pews. There is a party in the life of this church and people want to be a part of it. That's the witness of the gospel. The kingdom of God is a party. If it's not a party, it's not the kingdom. And Jesus, we could say then, is the great party thrower. He is the host to end all parties because his parties keep going on and on and on. This sign that John calls it, and the New Testament opens us to us, opens up to us rather, the character and the nature of Christ that He will do anything to keep the party moving. I have in my imagination sort of mixing uh, time periods. Right? Somebody says, "Hey, the wine's uh, run out." You know, the band starts to unplug and people start calling Uber and they're ready to go. Right? And Jesus says, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, whoa! It's just getting started. You thought earlier was good. Look what I have for you right now—the very best." Gail O'Day is a a scholar. She puts it this way. She said, There is an abundance of quality and quantity to the gifts that Jesus brings to us and to the world. There's quality and quantity. And the wine here, right, of course, in this story has been used as a metaphor to talk about the blood that Jesus pours out for our redemption and for our salvation and for the forgiveness of sins. But it also can be a metaphor, right, right? that just represents how God wants to pour out God's blessing in your life. And how God does that like a fine wine, pouring out blessing upon blessing upon blessing. Psalm 36 frames it in this way. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. All people may take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. I love that imagery. They feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink. From the river of your delights, the psalmist says that we feast, our life is a feast on what God pours out like a fine wine into our lives. And so here's the big deal, and I'll close with this thought. Here's the big idea, the big deal in this sermon. It's a very simple message, and in fact, people will leave today and say, well, I've heard that sermon in some way, in some fashion, a million times before. But there is an enormous difference In recognizing a gift and recognizing where it comes from. It's one thing to recognize blessing. It's one thing to recognize the gifts that are in your life. It's an entirely different thing to actually recognize where they have come from. Those are two different things. The latter is an expression of faith. That's why we come to worship. That's why we pray. That's why we give testimony That's why we keep throwing parties and inviting the most unlikely of people to join us because God is the giver of every good gift and gives the very best gifts in abundance and in quality. Meister Eckhart, the great spiritual mystic, once said, you really only have to learn one prayer. It's two words long. Thank you. Thank you. We go around. We talk about how blessed we are. We look at the gifts in our lives. We look at the gifts that are sitting right next to us. But how often are we acknowledging the gift giver? I know it sounds so simple. But to cultivate a heart of gratitude, a heart that understands where the origin of every good gift comes, the very best gifts in life, is a spiritual discipline. And it takes maturity. And we're called to do such a thing. See, I think what we're called to do and who we're called to become is a spiritual sommelier who not only has a discerning palate on the blessings of one's life, but also can identify where they come from. So would you do that? Would you cultivate this life of gratitude? A life that recognizes not just the gifts, but where they come from? Would you become that spiritual sommelier, giving thanks to God for every good gift, the very best gifts that God pours out? Would you recognize and remember that God is the one that sets the table? That God is the one who's throwing the party. That God is the one pouring the wine. That God is the one giving you and me every good gift. It's all from God. All of it. Amen.